Today we are finishing this short series on Habakkuk, on how to live by faith in perplexing times. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk. And last week we started chapter 3, which is really a crescendo of praise on the entire book. A book that began with Habakkuk being perplexed about the injustices around him, And then the subsequent revelation from God of a very harsh judgment. And yet he trusted God, but he struggled to understand God's ways. And God told him in chapter 2 that the righteous will live by faith. That the Lord would reward those who walk faithfully and live by faith. But the wicked will be punished. The wicked will perish. And chapter 3 is Habakkuk's prayer of faith that was eventually turned into a song for corporate worship. But it is really the finale of the book, and it does not disappoint. And so let's read it again in its entirety. Chapter 3 in its entirety to set up the last few verses that we're going to cover this morning. Habakkuk 3 verse 1 is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers and your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flashing of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. 
Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruits beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, though the fields yield no food, and though the flock be cut off from the fold, then there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And then the final note to the choir master with stringed instruments. It was a song to be used in corporate worship in Israel because of the magnitude of Habakkuk's faith and the crescendo of praise that we come to here. We covered the first 15 verses last week where we saw Habakkuk's confident faith in verse 2 where he believed and trusted God's past actions as well as trusting what he had promised that he was going to do. Habakkuk said, let it be done. He said, just remember to be merciful in wrath. But he essentially prayed that the Lord's will be done, even though he knew it was certain ruin for Israel, for himself, maybe even possibly the end of his life, as the Babylonians came and attacked. And then verse 3 through 7 began a portion of a vision that Habakkuk saw, and that's where we saw the coming of Yahweh in dramatic fashion, as if riding on a cloud with all power, pestilence and plague accompanying him, going before him and following after him. It was a terrifying sight of Yahweh coming to judge the wicked. And as we saw and talked about last week, this is another picture in Scripture of the final day when Christ comes to judge. The terrifying and dreadful day. And then in verses 8 to 15, we saw Yahweh coming to conquer to save His people, to put to death all those who stood against Him. You either bow the knee now, or you stand in Yahweh's path coming in all power to be run over. The God of the universe is coming to judge. Be ready. He comes to judge the wicked. But the death of the enemy means the salvation of the righteous. But with the end of verse 15 is the end of the vision of that final battle that Habakkuk saw. And in verses 16 to 19, we have Habakkuk's response to what he had seen. So this morning, verses 16 to 19, I've broken it up into two sections. One on verse 16, the convulsing of Habakkuk. And then 17 to 19, the celebrating of Habakkuk. The convulsing of Habakkuk and the celebrating of Habakkuk. These are two responses to seeing the end where Christ terrifyingly destroys His enemy and fully and finally saves His people. We see a response in Habakkuk of shock and also of celebration. But that brings us to point one, the convulsing of Habakkuk. Look again at verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. 
My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So Habakkuk, he's just seen this vision of the end where the Messiah, the Anointed One, comes to slaughter all those who oppose Him and give salvation to His people. And as we talked about last week in this vision, he's brought up close and personal to the bright, holy God before whom none can stand. He's seen up close and personal the destruction of the men who oppose God by a pestilence, plague, and the sword. He's seen entire portions of the earth's population killed in a matter of moments as Yahweh came to conquer. And in this verse, we see Habakkuk's first response to that vision. He says, I hear and my body trembles. The word for I hear there, it's the same word used at the beginning of the chapter. Just kind of putting a couple bookends on this section. That I had heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. But Habakkuk was expressing his trust in God for what he had already written, or what he had already told Habakkuk about God delivering his people. Habakkuk trusted what he had already heard and read and feared, but now he hears, he's seen it in such a vivid vision, graphic, shocking scene of events that his physiological reaction is violently shaking from the inside out. That term translated in the ESV as body uh, is really the, the Hebrew for belly or more literally the internal organs. One commentator translates this as my bowels churn. So he's seen this vision in his body. That's how he reacts. His stomach is just churning inside. He's so terrified. This word for quiver, his lips quivered. It's a rare word used only four times in Scripture, meaning to shake. That's used in 1 Samuel 3, 11, 2 Kings 21, 12, and Jeremiah 19, 3. All of these other times, it refers to ears tingling. And in all these cases, it's describing an involuntary physiological response to bad news. His bowels are churning. His lips are quivering. His rottenness enters into my bones. Rottenness is a, another rare word that refers to something that's been eaten by worms and weakened by being decayed. So he's saying my bones are weak, like they've rotted out. His legs tremble beneath him. His legs have become like jello. The tremble at the bottom of the verse. His legs trembling. It's the same word used above, but here it's in the imperfect, indicating that he continues to shake. He continues to tremble. One commentator says, and I quote, the prophet reports that he was so shaken by the overwhelming prospect of what he had understood that he convulsed to the depths of his being. End quote. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Habakkuk reveals here just how frightening it was when he just observes other people falling into the hands of the living God. 
He was passed over in the judgment. God was there to save him. But yet he was still this terrified that he was shaking to the core of his being, convulsing in the depths of his being. Reveals that God's judgment is the most horrifically terrifying thing imaginable. This is how a believer reacted when witnessing the judgment of God. And this is a, maybe a bit of a footnote at this point, uh, but I think it's a, a good opportunity to address uh, how our culture, specifically through movies in particular, can dull our sense of fear, which God uses. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, including being terrified of judgment, and in particular, the wisdom leading to salvation. And so I would just caution you against watching horror movies, especially for younger people who are not saved. Fear is one of the mechanisms that God uses to bring people to salvation, to fear His judgment. And if someone continues to dull that sense of fear, maybe even they begin to like the feeling of being afraid, then the fear of God is going to weigh on them lightly, inconsequentially. And so I would just caution you against dulling your own sense of fear, your children, that they would not be so used to being scared that the fear of God doesn't scare them. They've seen far scarier things on the big screen. So I would just, a bit of a footnote, but I would just caution you in that. Habakkuk here, the violent shaking was an involuntary physiological response. But what follows is a voluntary, thoughtful response. Habakkuk says, My legs continue to shake beneath me, Yet I will wait quietly. Quietly wait is a word that means to settle down, to rest. One commentator says, and I quote, it signifies not only the absence of movement, but being settled in a particular place with overtones of finality or of victory, salvation, etc. End quote. So Habakkuk describes himself as still physically shaking from the inside out, barely able to stand as his legs have rotted out from underneath him. And he says, yet I will be settled. Habakkuk is expressing the spiritual repose in his own heart, the rest that he has in what Yahweh has revealed. Whereas Habakkuk earlier in the book, he didn't seem contented to wait for God's judgment. Now he expresses his calmness, his restful spirit in waiting in anticipation of the coming day of judgment. That is to say, knowing what God's judgment actually looks like it makes Habakkuk a little less eager to see it come about. Even upon his enemies, he's not eager to see it come. Habakkuk says that he will now patiently wait for the answers to his prayer for judgment to come. 
because he knows how devastating they are. But waiting quietly, it doesn't mean that he is silent. He's going to take his duty of proclaiming judgment seriously. He's going to go out and do what God told him to do, to preach this message to the rooftops. He's going to do it with a sober patience with quivering lips when he's reminded and thinks back to that vision of God's judgment that he had. But at the same time, a spiritual rest in knowing that God is sovereign over all. And as believers, we want to await the judgment of God that final day in the same way. Not eager to see God's judgment come upon unbelievers, but rejoicing to see salvation come and lamenting the fact that judgment is necessary. And as we think about it, we're reminded, like Habakkuk, to take our job seriously of proclaiming the coming judgment that people might be turned back. But we wait patiently as Habakkuk did, waiting for the day of judgment to come with a spiritual rest and repose, knowing Yahweh is sovereign, Yahweh is in control. So that's his first response. The first point, the convulsing of Habakkuk. But now we move on to verse 17 through 19, which is the celebrating of Habakkuk. Let me read again, verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, And though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Here we have one of the most profound professions of faith in the Bible. Here Habakkuk is resolving in his mind, before the events come, that he is going to rejoice. He is planning and preparing his own mind, his own heart for what he is going to do and how he is going to react when things turn very, very dark. And I think before we even get to the details of this text, it's important to recognize this principle that Habakkuk is resolving and committing to rejoice when his world is turned upside down. And this is, in principle and in practice, a very good example for us to follow. We need to be forethinking in our minds that no matter what happens, In this life, we are going to keep our minds focused on heavenly things. Not on this earthly life, not on the things of this life. And it's a good idea to resolve ahead of time, to think beforehand, before we enter a bad situation, how we're going to react righteously. We think even if this happens, worst case scenario, I'm going to respond in this way. And even if this happens, I'm going to respond righteously in this way. Making this kind of plan is extremely important because otherwise you're going to be in the moment and your emotions are going to take over and you're going to be controlled by 
and influenced much more by your emotions unless you have a plan ahead of time. And regardless of what kind of situation we're walking into, maybe a follow-up appointment with a doctor where we aren't sure what he's going to say, going into an intense relational situation, maybe coming up on a sad anniversary, Whatever it is, we need to be forethinking and resolve that no matter what happens, we can rejoice as Habakkuk did here. We can say, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. That doesn't mean we won't be sad or overcome with grief. That doesn't mean we will, if we make a plan ahead of time, we will perfectly rejoice in this life and light of salvation, but it will help prepare us and prepare us to take those situations head on with a plan. Having a plan simply helps us not be driven and tossed by our emotions. Trying to figure out in the midst of being flooded with all this emotion what the right thing is to do. No, we've got a plan. We've thought about this ahead of time. I don't know about you guys, but I don't think well when I'm flooded with emotion, any kind of emotion, sadness, anger, whatever it is. Right up front, the principle is we should resolve, as Habakkuk has here, to celebrate and rejoice in salvation, even if everything else goes wrong. So let's look at the specifics and the dire situation that Habakkuk paints for us. We're going to see this dire situation he's painted for us. We're going to see his determined response. The reason he can make such a committed response. Followed by the results. So we have four sub-points here for this. Number one, ruin. Number two, response. Number three, reason. Number four, result. Ruin, response, reason, result. Four sub-points. So let's start with the hypothetical situation of ruin Habakkuk paints for us here. Subpoint one, ruin. Verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is probably the most dire situation we could imagine. I mean, he's already been told that the Chaldeans are going to come and exile them, but apart from being an enemy coming and exiling them, this is the worst possible situation. Some commentators bring up the fact that the fig and the vine, as well as the olive and the cattle in the field, they were used in Scripture symbolically of God's blessing. But I don't think Habakkuk's purpose here is to symbolize God's blessing because he knows God's blessing has already been removed. He's already been told his people are going to be exiled and destroyed. So I think Habakkuk here is expecting or even drawing a situation where there is a literal removal of all this stuff, a literal ruination of the land and how he is going to react to it. But verse 17, at least in the ESV, begins with the word though, which is concessive, meaning it introduces a clause That should or is expected to lead to the action of the main clause, but in fact it does not. 
Thus, the main clause occurs in spite of the clause introduced with this conjunction. That is to say, you didn't follow all that grammatical nonsense. That is to say, what action would you expect to follow the total ruination of one's life with no hope of a future? What action would you expect to follow? That's not what's going to follow. I mean, I would expect panic, anxiety, fear, anger, but not rejoicing. Right up front, we get an indication that the expected action or response is not going to happen. But in depicting this ruin, he begins with the figs. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom. The fig was just an abundant common food that was dried into cakes that could last a long time. Uh, Fig cakes or just dried figs is really what that means. They were a staple food in that society. So, I mean, you could think of just any of our staple foods that we have. Think of eggs, for example, just a staple food common in our diet. Without refrigeration, not very many things lasted or would keep for very long. And so they were very versatile when dried. The shepherds or the field workers could take them out with them, put them in a pouch for a snack, along with some dried meat or some dried grain, roasted grain. But he says, even though the fig tree does not blossom, he's painting a picture of harvest is, the spring is here, the things are budding, but the fig tree doesn't blossom. And so what you have left over, dried from the previous season, that's it. The last harvest of figs, that's what you have. What you have in your pantry, that's it for the figs. So imagine one shelf at the grocery store, you walk in and it's empty. And there's no hope of it being restocked anytime soon. So how would you react walking into the grocery store and there are no eggs and no hope of getting any more anytime soon? Well, that would be bad, but not catastrophic. You have some that you can ration carefully. But it's not the end of the world with no eggs, right? But Habakkuk doesn't stop there. Beyond the fig trees not blooming, he says, there is no fruit on the vine. This is a reference to grapes, which at the time of the blossoming figs, the grapes should have been visible. The grapes would have started to grow right before the figs blossomed. And so if the figs are blossoming and there's no fruit growing on the grapevines, And there's no grape harvest either. But he says, the figs blossom and there's no grapes growing either. Now we might think, no grapes, no big deal. I don't like grapes anyway. No wine, no big deal. I don't drink wine. Well, just hold on there a minute. In this time, wine was used in a variety of applications for various things, not just drinking or eating. Besides just drinking, it was used as a sanitizer as well as for medicinal purposes. The people of Israel, for one, they didn't live like we do, like kings and queens with easy access to drinking water. They would add a bit of wine to their drinking water to ensure that it was purified and safe for drinking. It killed the bacteria in it. On top of that, they used it to sanitize wounds. 
They even made ointment out of it to put on boils and open sores to keep them from infection. In ancient Egypt, they have records of it being prescribed as an anesthetic as well as uh, it apparently lessened the severity of utero contractions when giving birth. It was prescribed as a common cough suppressant. We know now that red wine is full of antioxidants, kills bacteria, it's good for your digestive system, it's even good for your heart. And ancient documents reveal that people figured out it was good for a lot of things. But when it came to life in the ancient world, it was about the only thing that they had, that they had to make sure that what they ate and drank was purified. They weren't going to get sick from it. Without it, clean drinking water was very limited. And absent red wine, they didn't have much to use as a disinfectant for wounds, sores, or anything else for that matter. So now imagine yourself in the grocery store. The eggs are gone, but now the medicine aisle is empty. Along with the drink aisle. Your favorite drink, soda, whatever it might be, along with all the bottled water, gone. Medicine aisle, empty, nothing to help you keep your little Johnny from going septic the next time he gets a cut on his foot. The little bit that you have stored up at home is it. There's no more grapes on the vine, no future harvest coming, no restocking anytime soon. And if that wasn't a catastrophic enough of a situation, Habakkuk goes on to say, and though the produce of the olive fail, one scientific journal informs us of the importance of olive oil in the ancient world, notes that King David used forces to guard Israel's groves and warehouses of olive oil. But this uh, journal goes on to say, and I quote, ancient peoples used olive oil not just for consumption and cooking, but also as perfume, ointment for the dead, soap, and lights. Olive oil was used to produce both medicine and cosmetic. Hippocrates, the guy that's named, uh, the Hippocratic Oath is named after, called it the great healer. And Homer called it liquid gold. And Galen praised it for its positive effects on health. So again, it was important. We use it for cooking. It was important for cooking back then. But it was important for so, so much more in the ancient world. I mean, we already lost figs. We already lost wine. We're running out of common things to keep us alive. But with the olive tree failing to produce, you lose the entire aisle of soap in the grocery store as well as the cosmetic section. And you've lost anything that was medicinal left. All gone, along with the entire aisle of light bulbs. They used oil to run little lamps instead of candles. All gone. You're running out at home, you go to the store, all gone. Imagine yourself walking into the grocery store, your pantry's getting low, you need to restock, your shelves are bare, and there is no hope of any of these things you need coming back anytime soon. But Habakkuk, he continues to paint an even more ruinous picture. He says, and the fields yield no food. As if it could get any worse. There goes the vegetable aisle, the 
fruit aisle. There goes the bread section. Habakkuk takes it to the extreme here to cover everything and says, even when there is no food growing in the field, there's nothing growing in the fields. Not only is there going to be supply chain issues, there's nothing at the beginning of the supply chain for it to eventually get to us. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't know about some of you, but I was kind of annoyed with supply chain issues when we had them. A lot of us didn't react with great righteousness with the supply chain issues we've had in this country, but none of those were even common staples. Things that we needed to survive. Habakkuk paints a picture here of the supply chain's over. There's no produce to start the supply chain. No more food from the fields. How would you react? As I was thinking about this, I thought back to 2020 when everyone was freaking out about toilet paper. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know how big of a deal it was here, but when I was, I was in California, there was a lot of people freaking out about toilet paper. Even six months after, the people in California were still standing in line to get toilet paper. I talked to some of my friends at seminary. And I wasn't freaking out about toilet paper. Thankfully, my wife had just gone to the Costco. I wasn't freaking out about toilet paper, but the thought did enter my mind of it not ending with the toilet paper, continuing to other things, and I thought, oh no. What is going to happen if we can't get food from the grocery store? Now, that hadn't actually happened. It didn't go beyond toilet plate paper. But that small feeling of anxiety that maybe you felt at that time, multiply that by about a million degrees. And that's how you would feel in this scenario that Habakkuk is drawing for us. But he keeps going on. He doesn't stop there. He says, and although the flock be cut off from the fold. This term for flock could include both sheep and goats. They'd both be included in this term. And they were both a source of food. They were also a source of clothing. The wool was used to weave and make garments. Their skin was used to make clothing as well. They were used for their milk. They were also used to fertilize fields. They were used in sacrifices at the temple. And they were used, their skin was used as to make leather for tents, for coverings. So you walk into the grocery store now and the meat section's gone. What you have in your freezer, that's it. On top of that, clothing section, gone. No weaving materials available. No milk, no cheese. On top of that, no Sacrificial offerings to appease God. No way to have your sins atoned for at the temple. No life to pay the penalty that you deserve for your sins. Habakkuk is painting a picture of life completely turned upside down, the most dire situation. But one more line, lastly, he says, and though there be no herd in the stalls. One commentator says that the, to the Hebrews, cattle meant wealth, or the herd meant wealth. He goes on and he says, and I quote, The availability of animals for sacrifice and the source of everyday needs and food, clothing, and labor. Abraham brought cattle back from Egypt and the 
Hebrews of the Exodus took their herds along with them. The Hebrews became skilled in animal husbandry and probably developed several breeds suited to the various natural regions of Palestine. Oxen were used especially for plowing and threshing, which was done by pulling a hardwood sledge on which the driver stood. They also used a simple cart, usually drawn by a pair of oxen. So this commentator notes the importance not only of these larger animals for food, but to help the people with labor, to prepare the fields, to carry their goods. So you can look at the bright side of there being nothing in the grocery store to buy, is that you don't have anything to carry at home. The fields produced nothing. And now you don't have a beast of burden to help prepare the fields for the next year. Habakkuk is painting a devastating picture here. One with no hope. If one of the crops failed, it was bad news. But for everything, for us, this is tantamount to every last shelf in the supermarket being empty. You're walking home empty-handed to survive for a little while on what you have left. No hope of restocking. No making it until next year. What will you tell your kids? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond in this catastrophic situation? And that brings us to subpoint B, the response. The response. Which is such a profound profession of faith. Habakkuk says, even though my food supply is cut off, even though there's no milk, no eggs, no flour, no bread, no meat, no vegetables, no fruit, even though I have nothing to use for medicine, nothing to sanitize wounds, nothing to purify the water, no lights when the sun goes down, no animals to eat, no sacrifices to worship with, even when certain death due to starvation, even when there is no hope in this life, Habakkuk says, we have verse 18, yet I, emphatic in the Hebrew, he says, I myself will rejoice. I myself will rejoice. The unexpected response to such a catastrophic situation. The expected outcome of one losing everything and having no hope of survival is anything but rejoicing. He says, I myself will rejoice. This word emphasizes an enthusiastic and expressive rejoicing. In other words, it's not just a quiet rejoicing in the heart. It's outward, it's enthusiastic, it's expressive. And he says, I will take joy. Another imperfect meaning that it can refer to continuous durative action. I continue to rejoice. And the word literally means to shout in exultation. Habakkuk declares that he will continue to live and rejoice in Yahweh, the God of his salvation. Because though it seems like his life is about over, and he has no hope in this life, he trusts God. 
He knows that God will ultimately save him, that he, Yahweh will win in the end. And he can continue to rejoice in that. He knows, he's just seen this vision of the end. He knows Yahweh is going to fully and finally save them. And so he says, I will keep my eyes fixed on that, even though all, everything in this life goes wrong. Like watching maybe your team in the Super Bowl and they're losing and it's down to the last second, the last play. And they win in the final seconds. You've seen this and the next day you go back to watch the reruns. Are you going to be anxious about the outcome? You're not going to be anxious. You've seen the end. You know how it plays out. The same thing here. Habakkuk seen the vision that Yahweh gave him. Yahweh comes to utterly destroy his enemies and to save his people. He brings ultimate salvation and eternal life. So when you're focused on this image, this vision of God saving, what else is there to do but celebrate? Habakkuk knows how this life ends. He's affirming his commitment to keep an eternal perspective on life, even when the worst case scenario happens. Michael Shepard says in his commentary, and I quote, Habakkuk expresses his confidence when he resolves to rejoice in the God of his salvation despite the loss of figs, grape produce, flocks, and cattle. End quote. And James Bruckner goes on and says, and I quote, under these terrible conditions, Habakkuk resolves to be joyful, not superficially with eyes closed to the struggle for justice or deliverance, but looking truth in the face. End quote. And the truth that he is looking squarely in the face is the truth of his certain salvation. That is to say, he doesn't have a superficially happy-go-lucky outlook on life. He has a solid grasp of the reality of the future based on God's Word. And he stands on that. Habakkuk vows to steadfastly walk in the light of the vision that God has given him and not lose hope. And even in addition to the Babylonians coming, even if the crops fail, the livestock dies, still Habakkuk will trust in God. Habakkuk's response here is a response of trust, not despair. How would you respond? Imagine your own pantry, low on food, medicine, toilet paper even. You go to restock and every last shelf is empty at the store. And they tell you there's nothing in the supply chain. No hope of restocking. And by the way, your car's just been stolen out of the parking lot. How are you going to respond? We actually had some people here uh, from the church, some members get their car stolen out of the parking lot at 7 o'clock in the morning. When they were here, they came here just to do something for the church, and their car was stolen out of the parking lot. And I got here shortly after this. They had already contacted the police, but they were sitting in the grass, and I asked them how their morning was going, and they very jovially told me that their car was stolen. And I kind of laughed because I thought they were joking. Their 
response did not line up with the reality of what had just happened. The same way with Habakkuk here. This is not the expected response. But as Christians, this is how we should respond to when things go wrong. You know what? I'm still saved. I can rejoice no matter what. Even if there's no food in my pantry, nothing for me to keep my family alive with. If you're standing in the grocery store, how are you going to respond? You're probably in shock, anxious thoughts running through your mind, worrying about as many things as you possibly can. How are you going to feed your kids? Imagine yourself in the store, and over here is Habakkuk, who is jubilantly singing praise songs to God. In fact, he's trying to push all the shelves out of the way to create a center space in the store for a worship service. And he's not singing Today is a good day to die. But he's singing about trusting in his God to save him. But no matter what happens in this life, he trusts God to deliver him, even if it's only in the life to come. And he's doing it expressively, shouting to the rooftops, saying, all is good. I've seen the end. I'm saved. I can be delivered. I will be delivered, and you can too. Everybody else is looking at this guy like, you are crazy. How can he be celebrating when it's most certainly the end of life? How can he respond this way? Well, Habakkuk tells us in the next line of the prayer, and that's subpoint B, the reason. Tells us the reason that he can respond this way. The beginning of verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. And the ESV has capital G, capital O, capital D. Uh, that's the Hebrew uh, name for Yahweh. And normally it's translated with capital L-O-R-D, but when it's in context with the Hebrew word for Lord or Adonai, they don't translate it as Lord because that would sound dumb to say the Lord, the Lord. So they put it in capital G-O-D. But whenever you see capital L-O-R-D or G-O-D, that is the name, Hebrew name Yahweh. And it's particularly common in the prophets. But Habakkuk opens up with me making the declaration that Yahweh... The Lord or the master of the universe is my strength. This is the reason he can declare, he can respond the way that he did. This word, my strength, is a word that can refer to strength, but it also and often does refer to wealth and property. Numbers 30, you don't have to turn there, but Numbers 31, 7 to 9 says, they warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. Heavy, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, with a sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. That word for goods there is the same word as strength here. Again, in Isaiah 8, 
3 through 4, he says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shalashbahaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. That word translated there as wealth is the same word translated as strength in Habakkuk. And I would argue in the semantic range of this word in Habakkuk, it means wealth or position or possession rather over strength. It seems to fit the context better with Habakkuk declaring that he will rejoice even if he doesn't have all these other things, even if all these other things fail, I still have Yahweh as my possession. It's also in line with Habakkuk earlier in the book referring to God as my God and my Holy One. The declaration that he possesses his God as much as his God possesses him. So after stating that even though there be no source of food, no source of fuel, no hope of a future harvest, though he would lose everything and possibly his life, Yahweh was his wealth. That's how he can respond. Yahweh was what Habakkuk looked to as his possession, which gave him great joy and hope, the greatest joy and hope, more than all other things in life. The prophet Jeremiah made a similar statement after witnessing the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Turn back a few pages to uh, Lamentations. Right between Jeremiah and Ezekiel is the book of Lamentations. And Jeremiah makes a very similar declaration. Jeremiah had essentially lived through what Habakkuk describes in his book. Babylon came, destroyed Jerusalem, took everything of value. There wasn't much of a future left for them there. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 19, Jeremiah says this, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So that's all the the affliction, the wanderings. He's seen Jerusalem fall. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Very, very similar to what Habakkuk wrote in his final prayer here in Habakkuk. Another faithful response. I mean, Habakkuk is telling us, this is how I will respond when things go poorly. And Jeremiah, he does make the same response here after it has all gone awry. They've been exiled already. Jerusalem's been destroyed. And this is how Jeremiah responds. How we ought to 
respond. We'll go back to Habakkuk. The reason Habakkuk could respond in continual enduring rejoicing is because even though he would have no food, even though he would have no goods, no wealth, even though he would have no future hope of produce from the land, even though he would lose, likely lose everything, including his life, the one thing that he had that could never be taken away was his God. Yahweh is mine. He is all my wealth. He is all my possession. So even if I lose everything, I can rejoice because I still have my most cherished possession. Tantamount to losing everything except your most valuable possessions. Someone breaking into your home and taking all the things you don't really care about. I still have my God. When you understand that Yahweh is the treasure of the universe. He is the good. He is goodness himself. He is the beautiful. He is beauty itself. When Yahweh is yours, and you are Yahweh's, what else matters? And that's easy to say right now. But that's the point here in Habakkuk. While it's easy, Habakkuk is resolving to set his mind straight ahead of time. So when the inevitable comes, and he loses everything, he has prepared his own heart to respond this way. He has planned to have a righteous and appropriate response for the coming hard situation. He has written this psalm to sing, to remind himself of the truths therein, that he might be encouraged. To remind himself of the response he said he was going to make. Because there would no doubt, especially for Habakkuk, be a day when he would not feel like singing this song. But he would put his emotions at the back of the train. Remind himself of these truths. Remind himself of the coming day of the Lord and where God was going to save him. He would remind himself of these truths and put his hope in that. And his emotions would follow. So Habakkuk can rejoice, even if he loses everything. Because he still has the one thing that really matters. His God. And as believers, this is how we walk by faith. Constantly reminding ourselves of how relatively unimportant the things of this life are. Constantly reminding ourselves that we have eternal life in Christ. And we can rejoice as Paul tells the Philippians to and essentially directing us to. He says, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And he further exhorts them to take their anxieties to the Lord in prayer, to continue to set their minds on the things that truly matter, what is just and right and honorable. Habakkuk here is the Old Testament, and many of the prophets are, the Old Testament version of setting our minds on things above, 
putting off the thoughts of anxiety and fear and putting on what we know to be true. No matter how hard it is, no matter what we go through in life, this should be our response. And after the reason for rejoicing that he has his God, there is the result of the one who lives by faith and trusts Yahweh to the depths of their being. So subpoint D, the result. This is the end of verse 19. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The result of such a trust in Yahweh is ascending to the heights like a deer. One commentator says, and I quote, Gone were his fears, doubts, and perplexities. He would trust in Yahweh and rejoice in his saving God. Israel's Redeemer was his, the master from whom alone he gained his strength. So near to God does Habakkuk now feel that in a bold simile he likens his spiritual climb to that of a deer or a gazelle swiftly ascending to the mountaintops and gracefully gliding over them. End quote. This is similar to something David said at the end of his life in 2 Samuel twenty two thirty four. David said, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. And there's a similar idea in Habakkuk 2, 9 where the Chaldeans who were pillaging, they were doing so in order to set their nest on high, safe from the reach of harm. Same idea here. Up high, safe from the reach of harm. The result of such a faith is that one is ultimately safe from harm. Like a quick gazelle or deer able to ascend the heights of the mountain to escape danger, Yahweh sets his children's feet safe on the mountaintops, away from all who would harm them but not necessarily physically safe in this life. Habakkuk knew the Chaldeans were coming. He knew his life could possibly be over, and yet he says the result of such a faith is being set safely on the mountaintops. Habakkuk, like Job and David and Daniel that we talked about a few weeks ago, trusted that Yahweh would keep his soul secure and that he would one day enjoy a resurrected body in the presence of the Lord for eternity. Habakkuk knew the Chaldeans were coming. And even if everything else in this life went wrong, he declares that he will trust Yahweh. Not because he would be physically safe, but because he trusted that ultimately, in the life to come, he would be set safely on the mountaintops. And beloved, that is our same hope. How much more hope do we have with the entirety of the New Testament written out for us? We know how it ends, just like Habakkuk did after this vision. Therefore, we ought to respond in the same manner. In conclusion, how do we live by faith in a fallen world? We rest knowing God's terrifying judgment will come upon the wicked, and we resolve to set Yahweh as our chief possession in our hearts. That no matter what we lose in this life, 
we can rejoice because we are still his and he is still ours. Even if we starve to death or slain by an enemy, we likewise trust that ultimately Christ will deliver us from death and the resurrection to come and enjoy the fullness of life in him and the eternity thereafter. And as our hearts are drawn away to other things in this life, we correct them, we repent of putting other things in God's place, we cherish him above everything else, we continue to set him as the central figure in our affections and our desires, putting off the things of the world and putting on love for Christ. That is how we live by faith, beloved, in a fallen world, a perplexing time. Let's pray. Our glorious King who sits on the throne, sovereign over history, over the universe, over every atom that moves in this universe, as we are tempted to distrust you, worry about the things of this life, may we be reminded, as Habakkuk was reminded and given this vision of ultimate future deliverance, ultimate happiness with you. Lord, set our minds and our affections upon you wholly, that the the things of this world would grow strangely dim. That we would learn to trust you in the midst of even the hardest of days. And that would we, like Habakkuk, would now resolve that when the bad things come, when the dark days come, this is how we're going to respond. Saying, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Lord, it's an amazing profession. Jeremiah was an amazing example of this, having his home destroyed, and yet he still responded this way. May we have the faith of Jeremiah and Habakkuk to respond in such a manner. In Jesus' name, amen.